Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here, Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Pacific Northwest of the beautiful USA. Today is, of course, the ninth day of June 2021. So last time I talked about various components of malnutrition and metabolic disease. And I said that that was going to be a synoptic lecture, one that allowed us to get a very clear view of one aspect of the aging process. And hopefully we succeeded in that. We've been covering the aging phenomenon for several months now, and I promised you I was going to do a series of video lectures that would ultimately conclude this long discussion. And indeed, we're about ready to do that. Right now, I'm doing what I call synoptic 30-minute uh, lectures that are going to be in audio so that these will be used as armamentarium for you to have already learned so that when I mention things in the video lectures, uh, hopefully they will be something you can recollect from these audio lectures. And I want to go into detail to explain uh, all of that minutia. So today we're going to talk about some pharmacological principles and the reason we're doing this is is very important in the aging process because many of the elderly are on a constellation of drugs. And these drugs sometimes interact with one another in very negative and, uh, of course, imprecise ways so that it can lead to even more morbidity in the aged and the medical community is well aware of this, and they're very careful usually to try to not have um, mode of actions interfering with one another when uh, more than one drug is prescribed for a patient, especially if they have multiple um, chronic diseases, which is often the case with the elderly. So what I'm going to do today is give you the foundation of pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics that you would get in an advanced pharmacology course if you were in graduate school, kind of thing that I used to teach. So that's what we're going to do right now. And here we go. Now, I'm just going to call this pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics. Don't worry, I'm going to uh, define those terms in a moment. Uh, and I'm going to say that this is on the aging axis. Now, um, Let's give you kind of a um, reason why I'm discussing this right now. A paper published in Anesthesiology Clinics, it's a journal, uh, just a couple of years ago, they were looking at pharmacokinetics and dynamics in the aging human. And what they say is that, uh, we're going to abbreviate just like uh, the easiest way to get around it, pharmacokinetics are going to call PK, and pharmacodynamics are going to call PD. So they introduce, introduce their work by saying that both PK and PD uh, change according to age. And these changes often relate to the reduction in organ utilization or organ detoxification of a given pharmaceutical. That's one thing that occurs to think about liver and kidney. Another thing that changes with aging, according to those two uh, pharmacological mechanisms, which I'm going to define in a moment, uh, are also receptor sensitivity, 
uh, homeostatic patterns, that is all the other intermediary metabolism and how it interacts with the pharmacological agent. As I mentioned in the introduction, concurrent medical use, that is um, interference with different modes of action sometimes, or also absorption. And of course, the overall complexity uh, of whatever other diseases, indeed the diseases that are being targeted by those pharmaceuticals, uh, interacting with one another at the pathophysiological and pathobiochemical levels. So you get, of course, an alteration in organ system uh, operation as one ages, put it as, as that kind of component. You also get a change in body composition. So as people age, they gain weight, usually well into their 60s, sometimes into their 70s, and they start to lose body mass. Of course, the nutritional component of people as they age will change in association with body mass fluctuation, but also just because of changes in appetite. And of course, all of the things we talked about just last time, all of the um, environmental that includes external to the body and internal to the body, stress responses, such as reactive oxygen, such as hyperinflammatory responses, such as infection. Those kinds of uh, metabolic insults occur uh, off and on through a lifespan. And the accumulated distress from those insults can then lead to a change in the mechanisms of pharmaceutical action. Okay. Now, along with that, you got changes in epigenetic patterns, something that I emphasize a lot in my lectures. So we're going to cover that as well. So older patients, even those that had been on a given pharmaceutical when they were younger, and that might only be three years before a certain change occurs, or even one year before, because people change rapidly the older they get, um, those changes can be dramatic enough that both pharmacokinetics and dynamics can tremendously alter even within one human being and even within a few uh, years or even within one year. So let's jump ahead and do some definitions and we'll get back to this aging component. So here's some definitions. <clears throat> Pharmacodynamics, of course, is the study of biochemical and physiological effects of drugs, pharmaceuticals that is, and the mechanisms of that pharmaceutical interaction and the relationship between the drug's concentration and its actual effect or ph pharmacological effect, I would say. Now that's pharmacodynamics. Another definition is pharmacodynamics, of course, is the study of what the drug does to the body. In other words, what, what, why it was synthesized by the pharmaceutical industry. Okay. So what, what its mode of action is, the targeting, right? Now, pharmacokinetics is different. <coughs> pharmacokinetics is a study of what the body does to the drug. So how the drug is metabolized, sequestered, translocated, uh, and, uh, and maybe turned from a pro-drug into an active drug. So however it's modified before it's finally uh, gathers its target, obtains the result, and then is detoxified or eliminated by the body. Okay. So again, pharmacokinetics in detail. In Greek, we say pharmakon. That's pharmakon means drug. And kinetikos is also Greek. And that means putting in motion. 
A lot of discussion of Kineticos, of course, was in some of Aristotle's early work uh, on nature, his non-metaphysical literature, that is. So pharmacokinetics is a branch of pharmacology. It's dedicated to the determination of the fate of uh, substances, we'll say, not just pharmaceuticals, because sometimes it's also over-the-counter vitamins, um, and sometimes substances found in um, different kinds of tea or uh, food. Anyway, substances that are administered external to a living organism. Of course, here we're talking about humans. So the discipline is applied mainly to drug substances, though in principle it concerns itself with all manner of compounds ingested, including those dietary, as I said, or otherwise delivered externally to an organism. It's not just ingested. And we're going to talk in detail about the different kinds of delivery systems. So you can think about nutrients, specific, like say essential nutrients, like alpha-linolenic acid, the essential omega-3 fatty acid, uh, different metabolites, hormones, toxins, as well as outright pharmaceutical drugs with specific targets. So pharmacokinetics is divided into the extent and the rate of the following. Absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion. So we refer to that as the ADME scheme, ADME scheme. Okay, I want you to keep that in mind. So let's start with the A, the absorption. Before a compound can exert any pharmacological effect on a target in a specific tissue, it has to be taken into the bloodstream usually via mucous surfaces like the digestive tract. So this would be called intestinal absorption. Uptake into the target organ or a specific cell mass or tissue also needs to occur. This can be a serious problem, of course, because of the natural barriers, such as if something is supposed to be functioning central nervous system, it has to get through, e.g., the blood-brain barrier. So, Factors like poor compound solubility, aqueous or lipid, chemical instability, easily oxidized or resistant to that. Um, and this can all occur, obviously, if it's taken as an ingested uh, pill, it's going to all occur in the stomach. You also get an inability to permeate. Uh, this is one of the problems with absorption, permeate the intestinal wall and that can also reduce the extent to which the drug is absorbed after a straight-up oral administration. Absorption critically determines the compound's bioavailability, okay? because if it's not absorbed, its lack of availability can also limit its efficacy. Drugs that absorb poorly when taken orally have to be administered in some other usually less desirable way, like intravenously, or by inhalation. Right? That's another uh, sometimes a common way to introduce certain kinds of drugs, if they can be aerosolized, for example. Now, distribution is the next component here. The compound <laughs> needs to be carried to its effector site, most often via the bloodstream. From there, the compound may distribute, of course, into tissues and organs, usually to differing extent. Yeah, now this is another barrier, right? We're gonna don't worry, we will discuss this in detail. I'm just moving through this. Remember, we're giving you a synoptic lecture on pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics. Now, the third component is metabolism. 
Compounds begin to be broken down as soon as they enter the body. The majority of small molecule drug metabolism is carried out in the liver, of course, by redox enzymes, something we've talked about very recently. Uh, these redox enzymes most exclusively positioned to uh, metabolize pharmaceuticals and other external drugs are the redox enzymes known as cytochrome P450s. Now, as metabolism occurs, the initial parent compound can be converted to a new compound, which we're going to call a pharmaceutical metabolite. When the metabolites are pharmacologically inert, metabolism therefore would deactivate the administered dose of the parent drug. And that usually reduces, as you might guess, the effects on the body. So metabolites can also be pharmacologically activated, sometimes more so than the parent drug. This is when you take in a prodrug that has to be, for example, converted with a protease. And we've talked about these as well, right? Now, remember, all of this that we're talking about, this ADME, all of this is pharmacokinetics, okay? Pharmacokinetics. So ADME, we talked about metabolism, we'll talk about E excretion quickly. Compounds and the metabolites have to be removed from the body via some kind of excre excretion, usually through the kidneys in the form of urine, or of course also in the feces. Unless excretion is complete, the accumulation of foreign substances can adversely affect normal metabolism, as you might well understand. Sometimes the potential or real toxicity of the compound is taken into account. Now, when we do that, we add one more letter to ADME. We say ADME tox or simply ADMET, and where the tox has to do, of course, with toxicity, right? So in the liberation of the substance from a protective coating, for example, or some other what is known as excipient is considered, we also speak of LADME, okay? And E is for excipient, right? as well as, as we've already discussed, where excretion is a component in the normal configuration of pharmacokinetics. So the route of administration will critically influence ADME, as you might guess. Pharmacology and toxicology, the route of administration is, of course, the path by which a drug, a fluid, or a toxin, or a poison, or any other substance is brought into contact with the body. Right? This is sensory strict definitions we're still into here. Now, a substance must be transported from the site of entry to the part of the body where its action is desired to take place, obviously, even if this only means penetration through the stratum corneum into the skin. However, using the body's transport mechanisms for this purpose can be far from trivial. So the pharmacokinetic properties of a drug, that is those related to processes of uptake, distribution, elimination, are all very critically influenced by the route of the initial administration. So what are typical routes of administration? They can broadly be divided into topical, enteral, and parenteral. Topical, of course, is local effect Substance is applied directly where its action is desired. Enteral, desired effect is systemic, so it's non-local. The substance is given via the digestive tract. 
parenteral, the desired effect is also systemic, but the substance is given by other routes than the digestive tract. Okay. So according to the FDA, it recognizes all of over 100, some 111 distinct routes of administration. So um, you can get any kind of abbreviated list when you start looking at this, you can look it up. So with topical, you can get epicutaneous. So the application is onto the skin. For example, uh, allergy tests, typical local anesthesia can be topical like this. Inhalation, this is often with asthma medications. Enema, for example, contrast media for imaging of the bowel. Eye drops onto the conjunctiva, or for example, antibiotics for conjunctivitis. Ear drops, including antibiotics for the ear and corticosteroids. And these are called for, these are related to what is called the otitis externa. And you also have intranasal, and that goes directly, of course, into the nose. For example, a decongestant nasal spray. And there's also a vaginal, like topical estrogens and some antibacterials and antifungals, right? So then we go to the enteral. By mouth, orally, of course, many drugs like tablets, capsules, drops, straight hard-milled pills, uh, sometimes by gastric feeding tube, duodenal feeding tube, or gastromy, many drugs, and also enteral nutrition can be entered this way. You also get rectal. Rectally, various drugs are added in as a suppository or directly as an enema. For the parenteral by injection or infusion, intravenous is into a vein, obviously. For example, many drugs like total parenteral nutrition also. Then you have intraarterial. Of course, that goes into the artery. Those are things like vasodilators, drugs in the treatment of vasospasm and thrombolytic drugs for treatment of an embolism. Those go into an artery, so they're intra-arterial. Of course, many of you have heard of intramuscular. That's into a muscle. For example, many vaccines, antibiotics, and long-term psychoactive agents go in IM or intramuscular. There are also some rare drugs that go directly into the heart. These are called intracardiac. So, for example, adrenaline during a cardiopulmonary resuscitation um, sometimes is injected directly into the heart. It's not as common as it used to be, but that's the way it used to go. And I'm sure you've seen movies where this has been uh, shown. Uh, also, you get subcutaneous. That's, of course, under the skin. And, for example, that's how insulin is delivered. Then you have intraosseous infusion. That, when you hear osseous, that's the bone. So it goes directly into the bone marrow. In effect, it's an indirect intravenous access because the bone marrow drains directly into the venous system. So that route is occasionally used for drugs and fluids in emergency medicine and with pediatrics when intravenous access is difficult or not indicated. You also have intradermal that goes into the skin itself. It's used for skin testings, for some say allergens. Uh, also, um, this is how tattoos are added to people. Um, intra, so it means ink. Intrathecal, that's into the spinal canal. That's most commonly used for spinal anesthesia 
and also for chemotherapy and also for certain drugs that are used like corticosteroids that are used for severe back pain. Then there is intraperitoneal. That's usually an infusion or an injection into the peritoneum. For example, the peritoneal dialysis is predominantly used in vet med and animal testing for the administration of systemic drugs and fluids uh, due to its relative ease of administration compared to other parenteral methods. Okay, So in higher vertebrates, the peritoneum is the serous membrane that forms the lining of the abdominal cavity. It covers most of the intra-abdominal organs, of course, and it's composed of a layer of mesothelium supported by a thin layer of just connective tissue. So the peritoneum is the serous membrane of the abdominal cavity, as I said. The corresponding serous membranes in the pleural and pericardial cavities of the thorax are called the pleura and the pericardium, respectively. So the peritoneum both supports the abdominal organs and serves as a conduit for their blood and lymph vessels and, of course, for their neural connections. All right. Now, a serous membrane, as S-E-R-O-U-S, or a serosa, is a smooth membrane consisting of a thin layer of cells which excrete a fluid known as serous fluid. Serous membranes line and enclose many body cavities, and those cavities are known as serous cavities, where they secrete a lubricating fluid, which reduces friction uh, during muscle contraction. So serosa is not to be confused with adventitia. Now, that's a connective tissue layer, which binds together structures rather than reducing friction between them. Straight up anatomy. Each serous membrane is composed of a secretory epithelial layer and a connective tissue layer, of course, which is underneath. The epithelial layer is also known as the mesothelium, and it consists of a single layer of avascular flat nucleated cells. They're also known as simple squamous epithelia, and they produce the lubricating serous fluid. And the fluid has a consistency similar to very thin mucus. And these cells are bound tightly to the underlying connective tissue. The connective tissue layer provides the blood vessels and the neural tissue for the overlying secretory cells and also serves as the binding layer, which will allow the, the whole serous membrane to adhere to organs and to other structures, whether, which are associated proximal to those organs. So there are other parenteral pathways for drug delivery. And I want to make sure that we cover those too before we finish for this afternoon. You have transdermal, and that's diffusion through intact skin. For example, a transdermal opioid patch in pain therapy, nicotine patches for the treatment of addiction to nicotine also, transmucosal which is diffusion through a mucous membrane. For example, insufflation, that's known also as snorting of cocaine, for example, and, or other drugs which uh, people snort. 
and also sublingual, such as nitroglycerin, and buccal, which is absorbed through the cheek near the gum line. You also have a straight-up inhalational, and these are typically inhalational anesthetics. We have epidural, and a synonym for that is peridural. It can be an injection or an infusion into the epidural space. For example, the epidural anesthesia. And you can also have intravitreal, which is directly in, that means inside the eye. Now, something about the epidural space. In the spine, the epidural space is that space outside the tough membrane called the dura mater. Sometimes just call sometimes it's just something called the dura. And within, of course, the spinal canal. It's formed by the surrounding vertebra. Adherent to the inside of the dura is a much thinner and more fragile membrane known as the arachnoid mater. Enclosed within the arachnoid mater is the subarachnoid space, which contains the cerebrospinal fluid, and finally, of course, the spinal cord, stentostrictive. So in humans, in the spine, the epidural space contains lymphatics, spinal nerve roots, loose fatty tissue, usually made up of sphingomyelin, small arteries, and a network of large, thin-walled blood vessels. And those are called the epidural venous plexus. So if you think about a dose of drugs, when, when it goes through the initial phases here of absorption, there's membrane transport, and usually there's at least one pass through some kind of metabolism. Then you build up a certain concentration in the plasma. This concentration has to be affected, and it has to do with such uh, occurrences as volume of the distribution and the clearance of the distribution. So you can generate what's known as a half-life of the drug's concentration in plasma. Then it has to go across the membrane. For example, the blood-brain barrier would be one, right? Then you develop a certain secondary concentration in the target organ. Say it's in the prefrontal cortex. Then ultimately and finally, you get the effect. And that's when you start dealing with pharmacodynamics, right? You start dealing with the effect of the drug on its target. And then you have to discuss things like tolerance development and that something else that can be measured as you titrate a drug. Now, all of those then I just talked about are potential barriers to drug delivery and their ultimate effect. Right? So, for example, the pharmacodynamics of clomiphene citrate, right? which is a nitrogen-containing aliphatic hydrocarbon. Primary site of action is in the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus actually perceives, in this case, a hypoestrogenic state. So when that occurs, the signal is sent to the pituitary, which increases the release of what are known as gonadotropins. And so this drug, this clomiphene citrate, secondary site of action, is actually in the ovaries. But its primary site of action, because it binds to estrogen receptors, uh, can occur also directly in the hypothalamus. Okay, So you have here primary site of action, 
and a secondary site of action. And in both cases, the drug has all the pharmacokinetic um, elements that we just talked about, and then ultimately the pharmacodynamics, which we have yet to explore. So I want you to understand that this is less, far less uh, complicated um, than you might have thought, right? It, it is complicated in the sense that we use a lot of acronyms and we talk about uh, various barriers and we talk about concentration gradients and we talk about mode of action. But once, once this drug has been synthesized by a pharmaceutical industry uh, operation, all of that's already been worked out, usually in animal models, in some kind of mammal, and then uh, first in cell culture, then in a mammal. And then, of course, it's tested through various uh, phase one through phase three and phase four trials with humans so that not only is the drug's efficacy checked, which you know that's what most people care about, but all, you know the, the readout of what the drug is supposed to do, but also, of course, all of that pharmacokinetics have to be explored and well um, recorded so that we understand how the drug will work once it's used in the public. So I'm going to stop there because the next big step is to talk about pharmacodynamics. And that's more fun to me because it's mode of action. So it's more biochemistry and less cell physiology. So we will do that next time. Um, this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios, hoping that you enjoyed pharmacokinetics this afternoon and pharmacodynamics uh, dynamics is up next. Bye for now. <laughs>